Of all the stories we will do in this series, this is the one that you probably know the best. And even if you haven't grown up in church, uh, maybe even if you've never been in a church until this morning, then you have probably heard or at least heard reference the story of David and Goliath. And the story is one that is, is popular in culture. And any time that, that a team is an underdog, you might hear a coach say, hey, look, David beat Goliath, and so we can beat this team, right? And so any type of underdog story, generally the story of David and Goliath gets applied. And, and so let me just give you the quick version maybe if if you you know you don't know this story if you just came from another country or something and and you've never heard of it before there there's a normal guy who's a Jew named David and there's a giant army man named Goliath and the two get in a fight and the little guy beats the big guy in this fight. That's the story. And and again, most of the time when we hear this story, it is used to say, "Hey, if the underdog really tries hard enough, if the underdog cares enough, if the underdog will just work enough, then the underdog, no matter how small, how little, can beat up the big giant in life. And in Christian circles, where uh, we actually believe in the Bible, the story and the point is not that much different. Generally, we would say it more like this. If you just have faith in God, it doesn't matter how big, how large the obstacle is, you can overcome it. And that is a great point in the, the story of David and Goliath. And that's the preaching point that if you've ever heard this story, that's probably been the one. It doesn't matter how big your addiction is or, or how difficult your situation in life is. You can overcome it if you have faith. And that is true. And that is part of this story. But today, I, I want to just look at something completely different than that because you know that. I mean, if you've been a part of culture, then you know David can beat Goliath, right? And you can overcome if you have faith, if you've grown up in the church. But today I want to I want to answer a question that that I don't think we ask enough and maybe you've never thought to ask this question when you're reading this story and it's a pretty simple question it's this why did David choose to fight Goliath in the first place I mean we know he fights him we know he wins we know that he has faith we get all of those things but really I mean just kind of logically isn't there maybe like why did he decide to fight this giant of a man? I mean, I know it's he's an underdog and all that, but why did the underdog get in the fight in the first place? And so this morning, as we look at this story, as we fill in some of these blanks, instead of that main point that, look, if you have enough faith, you can overcome anything, I want to talk about why David fought this battle with this giant named Goliath. And I, I think this is important for us because we're doing this series called Stories of Old and, and we've talked about faith. And, and we're looking at these men in the Old Testament and their amazing stories and we're asking, what does that say about faith? Faith that is big enough really to accomplish something great for God? And, and here's for me... Something that maybe you're wondering and maybe I wonder sometimes and that is, why should I do it? I mean, Chad is saying... In these sermons, if you've been here and you've been following along, he's saying, hey, do something greater for God. Have enough faith, believe God enough to do something mightier, something bigger, something that's really world-changing, that actually makes a dent in the evil forces that exist on this planet. Why? When you're already comfortable and you're already going to heaven, what should really compel you to do something more awesome for God? And so here's first, I'll just give you the scenario for this story. 
There's the Philistines on one hill. They don't show it in the cartoon that we just showed you. And there's the Jewish people on another hill. And in the middle of that, there is this giant valley with a little creek running through it. It was probably very pretty. And it's this giant valley. And so, if you know anything about warfare, you don't want to give up the higher ground. And so the Jews are encamped over here and the Philistines, their bitter, bitter enemy that a guy named Samson was supposed to defeat, we talked about that last week, is on this hill over here and nobody's coming down because they know if their army starts walking down, they lose the high ground and they lose the battle. And so they're just sitting on their hills. Stalemate. Who's going to act first? And then a giant comes out into the valley The giant is big. It tells us that his height was six cubits and a span. A cubit was approximately 18 inches and a span nine inches, which means Goliath was approximately nine feet, nine inches tall. That's really big. It's like double me, pretty much. I mean, not quite. Don't do the math there, but but close to double me. It tells us that he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. It's hard looking back and trying to figure out what certain weights were and how those their their measurement system aligns with ours. But this is what we can know. The weight of Goliath's armor is probably between 139 and 220 pounds. You've got to be a pretty strong guy to be carrying that much armor around, right? And so this is what we read about this giant who has now walked out in the valley. He's looking up the hill. That's a pretty gutsy move, right? That's pretty courageous to walk down there and know that nobody else in your army is coming down. But there you are. But he's huge. And this is what we read. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now there's something about his statement here that's very very important. It's essential really to the whole story and the understanding of it that you need to grasp. And that is this. To defy the armies of Israel was in fact to deny God himself. Goliath isn't just making a a statement about an army. He's making a statement about God. He's really disrespecting God. And we know that because when you read through the Old Testament, you quickly see that the Israelite nation was God's nation. And you see that their military conquests or lack thereof really was, was part of their showing the world that their God was bigger and stronger and real. And so when the military for the Jewish people lost a battle, people from around looked and said, hey, their God either hates them or he's not strong or he's not powerful or whatever it might be. But when they conquered... And you see this throughout the Old Testament. The people around them said, there is nobody like the God of the Jewish people. It's not like today where we claim to have a Christian nation, whatever, if that's America or another nation, but but it was even more than that because this really was God's 
literal nation. It was his holy possession. It was his treasured possession. It was, it was his people in a very literal sense. And so what we see here is that Goliath is not making a statement about some army. It's not like he's saying your army's weak or something like that. He's saying, look, I defy the God of the universe. And we know this even further because later in the story when David gets involved, 1 Samuel 17, 26, he says this, Who is the uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of, he doesn't say Israel, the living God? David makes this connection. Now, Goliath is hanging out in this valley and he's shouting at the, the Israelite people and this is going on and on and on. He's saying, look, I defy you. There's nothing you can do. I defy you. I defy your God. Come down here. Let's have a fight. This is a wager. If, if your guy wins, then we'll come to you and you, you win. And if, if our guy wins, if I win, then, then you become our slaves. And, and, and the Jewish people, even with God behind them, aren't exactly courageous. This is what we read in 1 Samuel 17, 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now you've got to ask yourself, who is Saul? When we meet Saul for the first time, this is what we read. Kish had a son named Saul, a, a handsome and young man, as could be found anywhere in Israel, and... And, this is really important to the story, and it's often forgotten, he was a head taller than anyone else. 1 Samuel 10.24 says, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? And he points at Saul, if you go look at the context, and this is what it reads, There was no one like him among all the people. Saul was the first king of the Israelite people. He was a guy that was bigger and better looking and apparently stronger than anyone else in the entire nation. And listen to what 1 Samuel 9.16 says, because this gives us kind of a clue into the life of Saul and the life of David and the story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 9.16 says, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. That's Saul. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. Saul's job in life was to rule the nation of Israel and to defeat the Philistine people. Now rewind to what I just read, 1 Samuel 17, 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, a giant, yes, but Saul's pretty giant himself. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. You see, what you need to remember about this story, while David comes in and he's the hero, as you already probably know and we'll see in a minute, Saul's job, his very job in life, was to go out and beat this Philistine man. God had said that he would do it. The people looked at him as the leader who would do it. You saw in the cartoon that we showed, these battles have been going on for a long time, all the way back to Samson, and God had put Saul in a position and created a man, really, in just his stature that was there to defeat the Philistine people. And now he hears the words of Goliath and he's cowering with the rest of of his men. And then we read, so profound, 1 Samuel seventeen twelve. Now David 
Oh, and the contrast between these two men is absolutely incredible. David was a son of a man named Jesse of the tribe of Benjamin in the Jewish Old Testament. He had three older brothers who were on the hill with the Israelite army, scared of the giant. But he was a shepherd, is the youngest of his dad's children, and so he went back and forth from the battle line to his dad's flock where he took care of the sheep. And, and this is what we read, First Samuel 17, 17 and 18. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take the ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring some assurance back from them. In other words, he says to his son, Hey, I want you to go to the battlefield. I want you to give some supplies to your brothers who are troops. And I want you to find out how they are doing. This is before the internet, if you were unaware. And so he has to send somebody to get some news. And so David goes. And when he gets there, it tells us, he drops off his bags. He runs to the battle line. And he hears Goliath taunting. And David looks at the men who are there, the soldiers, the men who should be fighting, and he says, What will happen for the man who defeats this Philistine? And then he adds this, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The people say, Well, there's three things that will happen for this man. He will get the, the, the king's daughter in marriage. He will no longer have to pay taxes. And he will get lots and lots of riches. That's a pretty good combo. I might have gone down there. You know, I mean, like, that's like the big three. You get rich, you don't pay taxes, you get a, a woman in marriage. I mean, just life would have been easy. And David's brother looks at him. This is an interesting part of the story. And he says, basically, you're just bloodthirsty. You just came to watch this battle. And now here's the thing about David that I love is is he's undeterred. And we see throughout the the entirety of David's life that that he is driven by what God wants and not what people say or what he might feel like at the end of the day. Because his brothers, I mean older brothers can have an effect, right? And his older brothers say, look, you're just bloodthirsty, you're evil, this is no good. And he is totally undeterred. He has no hesitation. He is willing to fight the giant. Saul hears about this. And he sins for David. This is what we read. 1 Samuel 17, 32 and 33. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on the account of the Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. And then David says one thing. This was like my favorite part of the story when I was a kid. I actually had this really... I don't know how, they, you couldn't do this anymore because we protect our kids in crazy ways now. I'd probably get in trouble for saying that. But I actually had an action figure of David and Goliath and you could pop Goliath's head off. It was awesome. Um, he was big, David was little, and the head just popped right off. Um, anyway, but my favorite part of the story was not the killing of Goliath that we'll get to in a minute. My favorite part of the story, for whatever reason, I think because my grandma really liked it, was, was this part of the story. David looks at Saul and he's like, hey... I'm a shepherd, man, and whenever a bear or a lion would take one of my sheep, I would chase them down. And when I got to them, I would grab my sheep back, and then I would kill the bear or the lion. 
Isn't that awesome? I mean, what a stud. Uh, and, and when I, even in the little kid version that I had in my head before studying for this sermon, I pictured like a lion or bear trying to attack and then David was able to kill it by the help of God. But that's not actually what David said. He said, when the lion or the bear got my sheep, I went after them. And then I got my sheep and I killed the lion or the bear by the power of God. And he says, look, the, the Lord has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear and he will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. There's two things that are really important in what David says. This is his, his final comments, really his only kind of comments about going into this battle and what he's thinking and, and how he had the courage to do it. Not why he did it, but how he had the courage to do it. And there's, there's two really important things. First, he draws upon past experiences. And that's something we talked about when we told the story of Joshua at the Battle of Jericho that you can listen to online. But, but David goes, look, I can look back in my life and I can see when God has done something powerful for me and I have not forgotten it. And I think we are too quick in our current church culture to just kind of say, well, that was nice, God, and then to move on to the next thing. But David, as he's about to do something that everybody else is scared to do, he draws upon this past experience. He says, look, God, every time I have, I have needed him to protect me from the bear or the lion has protected me from those things. And I'm pretty sure he's going to do it again. Now, here's the other part. David recognizes that God is the one who gives us victories. He isn't going to rely on his own power for this victory. And I think that's where we get hung up a lot of times. And we're, we're doing this series and we're talking about doing great things. And I, I believe that God is, is probably putting some things on your heart. And you're saying, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. And, and, and you're, you're starting to kind of have these feelings. Where, and maybe you're fighting them. And you're thinking, I, I don't really want to do those things. And, and one of the main things, one of the main excuses that I hear from people as far as not doing something great for God is, well... I just don't know if I have the time. I don't know if I have the skill. I don't know if I am able to do it. And nowhere in this speech that David gives to Saul does he say, I got it. He says, look, God has always helped me and God will deliver this Philistine to me. He doesn't say, look, I'm extremely good with a slingshot. You know, I've, I've missed a couple of times. We'll hope it works out. He says, this is going to be God's fight. And he trusts in the power of God. We need to see that. Saul says to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And then he says to David, hey, wear my armor. That's pretty nice of him. But again, Saul is a head taller than everybody else, and David is a young man who probably hasn't really filled out at this point. He's not a child like we picture sometimes when we tell this story, but he's not uh, an adult either. And, and so David tries on the armor, and it says he can't use it because he's not used to it, and he's probably too small for it. And he says... I'll just go my own way. And it tells us that he grabs five smooth stones from the creek. So David walks out into the valley. He's now the third person out in the valley. You have the Philistine named Goliath. You have Goliath's shield bearer. You're a big deal when you need somebody to hold a shield for you. I would hate that job if I was going into a battle. But that's a, a different story altogether. And now he's walking down. I mean, just, I know you've heard the story. Just picture walking down into that valley with the giant. I mean, Every step you're taking coming down that hill, that giant is looking bigger. Like, man, I thought he was seven feet. Now he looks like he's eight feet. Oh, he's looking bigger than eight feet. I mean, and you're thinking, am I doing the right thing? 
But David is not that way at all. There's a confidence to him. There's an arrogance to him. And there is to Goliath too. And I'm just going to read this. This is the action part of the story. This is the best part of the story. Even when we recorded our kids' audio, which you can listen to online, it's very well done this week. We pretty much quoted this because it's so good. We made it a little more kiddish. But, but this is just action. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bear in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give all of you into our hands. David doesn't sound too scared to me. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and he drew it from the sheath and he killed him. He cut off his head with the sword. In this series, we're talking about faith that leads to doing great things for God. And in the story of David, we really see two key components. The first one you already know, and that is this. David did defeat a giant. And while you know this point, it's important to reiterate, nothing is impossible when you have God on your side. Uh, I wouldn't say this if I was coaching a team, but truthfully, some things are impossible if you don't have God on your side. It doesn't mean every every bad football team can beat every good football team if they just put in enough effort. That's not the point of the story. But one of the main themes of the story is that there's this giant man who this little guy defeats, and you can do it too if your faith is in God. Secondly, you must remember that ultimately God will save you. Now look, this is so key. If you're going to do great things for God, then you need to understand that God will save you. That God is going to take care of you. And you can't, you can't believe that if you're not a Christian. Because it's not true for you. But, but if you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus died on a cross for the salvation of you, He died for your sins, and you give your life to Him, then you can trust that even if Goliath, even if these things in life literally end your life, it's going to be okay. Steve Jobs delivered a speech at a, at a Stanford um, graduation, a commencement speech that has become very famous now. And in it, I'm a big Steve Jobs fan, but, but he said uh, that the most freeing thing for him, the most freeing thing in his whole career that allowed him to do creative things, that allowed him to create new products, was the recognition that he was going to die. And I think that Steve Jobs made a great point, but it was a half point. 
Because the greatest thing as far as being freed up to do amazing things, to do what you think God has called you to do, to do whatever you think is right, is not the recognition that you're going to die someday. It's the recognition that you're going to die someday, but yet you will live on after this life. Steve Jobs was just saying it because he's like, it's going to end. But Christians can say, yeah, sure, I will die. No big deal, though, because my life will continue in eternity in the presence of God. And I I have to just make this so clear to you. If you are going to accomplish great things for God, then you must, in a very real way, in an out loud way maybe, say and understand that you are saved. If you don't really believe that there is life after this death, then you will always be living for this life. And that will not free you up to face giants, to do amazing things for God, because it's scary. I mean, what if I get made fun of? That doesn't matter if you have eternity to look forward to. What if I die? Well, that doesn't matter if you have eternity to look forward to. What if I don't have as much money? Well, that doesn't matter if you have mansions in heaven to look forward to. You see, until you really grasp and understand that it is the Lord who saves, as David states it, then you cannot be free to accomplish great things. And I think most Christians, in a, in a kind of a theoretical way, believe this. Hopefully you do. Yeah, I'll go to heaven someday. But if you really examined your feelings and, and the way that you approach life, you might, you might come to grips, maybe you should come to grips with the idea that, that you're not really convinced that there's something else. Or maybe you're just not focused enough on there being something else after this life. I mean, I look at Christians that are, that are just driven by emotion. I mean, and they're up and down and, and they're joyful when things are going good and they're, they're sad when things aren't always and, and they make decisions for God to do something cool for him when it's easy and when there's other Christians around but but when there's not Christians around and they're in a different setting a different place then they don't make decisions for God and and, and I know that these people are not focused on the fact that God has saved them and they will they will spend eternity in perfection in heaven that's the truth of it the greatest people that I've known that have lived for God in amazing ways, all have one thing in common, and that is that they look forward to the day when they will die. doesn't mean that they kill themselves. It doesn't mean they're depressed. It means they look forward to the day they die because they know that they will meet Jesus. Some of you probably watched Billy Graham's 95th birthday um, celebration and and his last sermon uh, that he preached. And and you look at the life of Billy Graham and you see his comments as he gets older, and Billy Graham will say, This isn't it. This is fine. This is not a big deal. Death is just another step to know Jesus more and know Him fuller. And until you come to that point, you cannot live an amazing life for God. But we still haven't answered the question, why did David choose to fight this battle? It was Saul's job, right? There were more qualified people for this job. It wasn't his thing. He could have gone back to the, to the fields and, and taken care of the sheep some more. And so why did he do it? And maybe you picked it up as you, were, as you were listening to the story. And that is this. David was passionate about God not being defied, but rather being honored. David was sold out to one idea. 
You see it in his life. He makes plenty of mistakes, but you see it in his whole life. His whole drive was to make God look good. And that's what honored means, right? I mean, honoring somebody or anything, just it means making them look important, making them look valuable. And David's entire life, his whole life, was spent trying to make God look important on this earth. I mean, listen to the quotes in this story. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. You see, David doesn't get involved in this battle. There's no story of David and Goliath. If David isn't at a very young age driven by the desire to see God honored, and by a passion to never see His God defied on the earth. And here's the problem I see with most of us, most Christians, is that we're like, yeah, I'd love to do something great for God, but we're not passionate about that. I mean, we're like, yeah, that'd be cool if I could do something good and get some more rewards in heaven or something like that. But look at David. He's like, this guy cannot talk bad about my God. I'm going to put an end to this right now. This is unacceptable. Who's this guy? This guy's making fun of God? Not my God. That's not going to happen anymore. And if we're going to accomplish great things for God, then the truth is, we have to be passionate about God. We have to be passionate about His glory. I think it's worth repeating one more time. I I think, just really quick, the gospel. I mean, there's a God in heaven. Most people believe that. There's a few atheists out there. But most, almost everybody, uh, statistically believes that there's a God. And the Bible tells us the story about that God. And it's a pretty simple story when we break it down. He created people. That's pretty awesome, right? I mean, He made people. And He made people because He wanted to, to have a relationship with these lesser beings. Also pretty awesome that He would care about us in that way. But these people turned their back on Him. And every person who has ever lived on this earth has turned their back on God and done things that He doesn't want us to do and rejected Him and said, hey, I don't care about what you think. And so, this was God's plan. Not to zap everybody, not to say, I'll start over with some new human beings, but to say, you know what, I still love these people. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come in the, in the form of a little baby and I'm going to live down there on that fallen, hurting, terrible planet that planet that's full of sin and pain and and loss of loved ones and and getting made fun of, I'm going to live there for 30 years. And at the end of that 30 years, I'll suffer more than anybody has ever suffered in their entire lives because it'll be spiritual and it'll be emotional and it'll be physical to the extreme. And I'll do all of that so that I can take on a cross the punishment that they deserve for their sins. I'll allow myself to be punished so that those people don't have to be and they can come back into a full relationship with me and someday spend eternity in my presence. Now, just as long as we go, yeah, that's the story, whatever, we'll never do great things for God. But when we really pause and we allow ourselves to be impacted by that type of love and that type of grace, Then when somebody says something about our God, we don't go cower in a corner somewhere. It doesn't mean we yell at them, but it means we do something about it. It doesn't mean that we can sit around and go, oh sure, 
lots of people that don't believe in, in my God and that He came to save the world. Too bad for them. I have a life to live. Can't do that anymore when we become passionate about God. Can't do that. We have to say something. We have to do something. And, and here's the thing. I know most Christians have excuses for not doing something for God. But when you find something that they're actually passionate about, those excuses go away and they find a way to make a real difference. And that might be you. I mean, really, like, just think about it. If you're like, well, I'm not that passionate of a person, I bet there's something you're passionate about. Or, well, I don't really, I don't know if I can do anything. Well, I bet there's something that you're doing pretty well. Maybe it's just keeping yourself alive. Maybe that's what you're passionate about. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's being creative. Whatever it might be. Some of those are good. But our passion needs to be God because of the story. I mean, it's incredible. We took a time of confession this morning. We confessed before God. And every time that you needed to confess and you said, God, I did this, Jesus, God in human form, died for that. And when you come to realize that, then great things can start happening. Let me just give you, I I wrote four things down that you maybe are like, I would really like to do better in this this area of my life and I'd like to serve God in this area. Because we're talking about the big things, but some of you probably are like, well, I'd love to do big things for God, but there's a giant standing in my way and I can't even think about anything else. And and here's four, I think, kind of giants that that really, until you're passionate about God, love Him and excited about Him and hate to see Him defied, you're really not going to do a very good job in these areas. Marriage. It's really easy to say, I'd like to fix my marriage. I'd like it to be more godly and all that. But you're not going to do that until you say, I want to honor God in everything. And then that will trickle down into your marriage. You can't just go, I'm going I'm to fix my marriage. You have to say, I am passionate about seeing God honored and then your marriage will get better. Your finances. I mean, you always just spend like the rest of the world, which is not very good. I mean, look at the debt in our country. You'll always spend like the rest of the world, just buying whatever makes you feel good until you are passionate about serving God. You're passionate about making Him look good on this earth. And then you might spend your money for God. Serving in the church. You might do something. You might show up and help out in some way. But you're not going to serve God in any great way until you're passionate about God and making Him look good. And you are never going to break any addiction until you are passionate about, about making God look good. You will go back and forth in your addiction. You will give in to it and then you'll confess and then you'll give in to it and then you'll confess. But when you say, Lord, I'm passionate. I, I understand the story. I understand you gave your life for me. I understand that you're my creator and my savior and that you love me so much and you're passionate about God. Then you have a chance to break that addiction in your life. So here's... Let me just two things that I think will help you be passionate about God. One, look at the story. I mean, maybe you need to go home and you need to read the whole Bible and, and you need to kind of grasp that amazing story. But, but maybe you just need to think about the story because you already know it. And you just need to pause. And you really need to be blown away again by the fact that, that God would love you enough to create you and interact with you and then die for you so that you could be saved. 
And you need to not just like, oh, I thought about it, I did my own work, but you need to like meditate on it. I've been reading the Psalms, many by David, and, and one of the things I see about David is, is that his prayers weren't like my prayers often, like checklist prayers, you know, and I, I'm pretty good at that kind of prayer. That's, But I've been really like kind of amazed at how David has different kinds of prayers. He says things like this, I will wait upon the Lord. I think some of you need to just be at home and you just need to wait and say, God, I need you to just impact me because I want to be passionate about you. And and David says, I will meditate upon the Lord and His words. And some of you just need to meditate. You need to go home and you maybe have seen John 3.16 a million times. You just need to read John 3.16 and like think about it on a deep level and meditate on it. And I'll just end with this quote by A.W. Tozer. He in essence says, that the passionate people about God aren't satisfied with not being passionate about God. Here's this quote. Some people have a knack for making me hungry to know God. I know a few people who when I'm done talking with them make me want to know and love Him more. I treasure those people. They don't try to be religious. They don't attempt to be spiritual. They simply are themselves and in the process radiate the presence of God. Many of them have trekked through dark valleys yet they still carry a hope, persistent passion, and a love about them. To have found God, listen, this is the key part. To have found God and still to pursue Him is the soul's paradox of love. Scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of a burning heart. St. Bernard stated this holy paradox in a musical quatrain that will be instantly understood by every worshiping soul. We taste thee. O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountain head and thirst, our souls from thee to fill. Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel at the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him, they prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out, and when they found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would be a people, a church, a country, a religion that continues to seek after you. Lord, I know that many who, who sit in front of me, they know you. And Lord, they're close to you even. But I pray there'd be a burning desire in their souls, in our souls, God, to know you more. And I pray, Lord, that every time we taste your goodness, we would long to feast greater, Lord. I pray that every time we take a step forward in our passion for you, we would be compelled to move forward, Lord. And Lord, it is a paradox, this Christianity thing, and I found it to be true in my own life, that the more I love you, the more passionate I am about making you look good, the more I want to love you and the more I want to be passionate about making you look good. And I pray, God, that that this church would have a a never-ending desire to, to love you more, to care about you more, and to want to see you honored on this earth. And Lord, we can look around. And Lord, there are plenty of Goliaths. There are lots of things that look like they can't be overcome by the church in America today. But Lord, we know that's not true. 
David beat Goliath. But Lord, we also, I also believe that Goliath will not be taken down until your people can no longer stand to listen to you be defied. And we want nothing more, nothing more, God, than to see you look good, to see you honored and glorified and praised in our nation. Jesus, I thank you so much that you came to this earth and you died for me. I pray, Lord, that we would never, never make the story of the Bible just another good story, something that's some small part of our life. But Lord, it would be the driving force of our life that the living God, the living God would come and take away our sins. Let it drive everything that we do. It's because of it that I pray. Amen.